Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Asking for Myself, the podcast where I ask all the questions you're too afraid to. And as I was thinking about this intro, I realized that you may not actually be afraid to ask these questions. Perhaps you just don't know how or you haven't had the opportunity to do so. And hey, some of these questions are just not that deep, so they wouldn't even be difficult to ask. And that has me wondering if maybe it's less about the questions I'm asking that you may be quote unquote too afraid to, and rather about what the answers to these questions in these conversations can inspire in your life. Ideally, you start or continue asking the questions that are holding you back from experiencing the type of relationships and pleasure you deserve. I know that when I was younger, I had a really hard time advocating for myself. I didn't know how to vocalize my needs or sometimes even how to identify what those needs were. I often felt really alone and confused when it came to what was going on with my body or in my mind, and that's what inspired me to start Taboo and why I am so excited to be having these conversations on the podcast. If you haven't joined us before, how rude of me, let me take a step back and introduce myself. I'm your host, Mia, the founder of Taboo, where we create digital products to empower you to have more fulfilling sex, strong and healthy relationships, and nurtured mental health. If you've been following the Asking For Myself page on Instagram, I shared that this week has been a little bit of a roller coaster. And I just want to say that I really appreciate you listening to the podcast, engaging on Instagram, responding to polls, and sending in questions or just sending a DM to say, hey, I'm getting a lot more of those and I can't tell you how validating it is to feel like there's purpose to this podcast and that I'm not just speaking into the void, which right now, of course, I literally am. Anyway, I'm so grateful for this community that we're building. So thank you. And please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. Today's episode is all about attachment styles and how our childhoods impact our relationships as adults. I remember first learning about attachment styles a few years ago, and it felt like a lot of things clicked. My friend and I were going back and forth just being like, oh my gosh, that's so me. Like, that's so you. It all makes sense. But it's interesting because later in this episode, we do talk about how some people misdiagnose themselves. And a lot of what I wanted to do with this podcast is give you direct access to different experts because a lot of what we learn now or what we think we're learning is from Instagram or TikTok. And there is simply not enough space in a post or a reel to get into the nuance and depth of these subjects. Honestly, in many cases, we may need to actually work with a professional. So hopefully this conversation will help you down that path if you're not on it already, or at least give you some actionable insights for your own life. So let's get into it. Today, I am joined by two brilliant mental health professionals. We have Dr. Betsy Chung, a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in making sense of your childhood relationships to pave the way for cultivating healthy relationships as an adult. We are also joined by Nicole Walker, a licensed mental health counselor and coach who specializes in attachment theory and how to understand your unhealthy dating and relationship patterns 
to help you find and experience secure, stable partnership. This is such an interesting conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. And maybe that it even connects some dots in your own life. So without further ado, let's talk taboo. Hello to both of you, and thank you so much for joining today's conversation. Would each of you just start off by introducing yourself and a little bit about your background? My name is Dr. Betsy Chung, and I help people develop healthy relationships, not just with others, but with themselves as well. I talk a lot about childhood and how our childhoods impact the way that we view and engage in relationships. I work out of California. I'm in Southern California, and I primarily see clients virtually right now. And my name is Nicole Walker. I am a licensed counselor and coach, uh, and I'm based in upstate New York. And a lot of my work focuses around attachment theory and helping individuals kind of getting out of their own way of finding and keeping that healthy love uh, we all deserve. So that's kind of my focus. So it sounds like Betsy, me and you probably work with a lot of uh, similar people or a lot of similar topics. So I'm excited for this chat. Yeah, I felt like you were both pretty much perfect for this conversation. And I know that attachment theory is like all over Instagram. I think there's so many people talking about it, uh, whether they have a background in psychology or therapy or not. But I think, you know, attachment theory seems to be something that people have really hooked on to and tried to learn more about and try to identify what attachment style they have. So Nicole, can you just kind of start off by explaining what each attachment style is and how those are formed? Yeah, of course. Um, so, and I think I want to share as a preface to this too, because it made me think of it because when you, you know, you brought up Instagram there, people have thrown out like all these different labels. I personally subscribe to like the attachment theory, like purist view of like Bowlby, who came out with these styles in the 50s. He came up with four styles. And a lot of that research was um, kind of just expanded by uh, Mary Ainsworth later on. So those are kind of the four styles that I'm going to use. Um, avoidant, anxious, secure, and disorganized. Because I know some people there's like dismissive and fearful and like, you know, fearful, anxious. And I, and I think it way, way overcomplicates it. That's just like my personal thought. So I think Thank that you. it's easiest okay, <laughs> to kind of like stick with those four. So, um, so yeah, a really quick rundown. Like I said, there's four different attachment styles. And an attachment style is uh, usually kind of a product of your upbringing and how your primary caregiver responds to and attunes to your physical and emotional needs. So this is not just is your caregiver physically around, but how are they able to kind of meet your emotional and physical needs and provide that, you know, kind of validation and acknowledgement. Um, and I use the word caregiver on purpose. So this does not have to be, you know, your parent. It can be whoever's raising you um, as a child. And the hope right? Or ideal case scenario is we have secure attachment, which means that your caregiver is really reliable, um, very consistent in meeting all of your needs. Um, they encourage emotional exploration. 
And this develops a lot of trust in the child and they have a positive sense of self and a positive view and sense of others as well. And then when with anxious attachment, that is usually a result of having very inconsistent caregiving where sometimes the parent is very, or caregiver is very available and attuned to the child's needs. Sometimes they're not. So that inconsistency and not really knowing what you're going to get creates a lot of anxiety in the child. Um, And that's where we can get anxious attachment. And as an adult, a lot of times this comes across as that individual being very preoccupied with any threat of disconnection in their relationship or just really do feeling that they need to do whatever they need to do to maintain that closeness. Um, and these people, um, yeah, just in general experience a lot of anxiety in their relationships and about where their relationship uh, is going. And then next we have avoidant. I mean, avoidant attachment is usually a result of being in an environment as a child where that kind of emotional expression isn't really encouraged. So a lot of times there can be emotional neglect. So, you know, as a kid, right, like all behaviors have a purpose. And if we keep on trying to like share and no one acknowledges that or is there to meet it, like we're just not going to keep doing that. Right. And the other kind of side of that coin is if we have a parent where there's some emotional enmeshment or a caregiver who uh, maybe has some personality disorder or is really struggling with their own kind of like emotional intelligence and maturity, if they are kind of like sucking up all the energy in the room and are sometimes leaning on the child for their own care and needs, that child then learns, oh, closeness with others equates to abandonment of myself. So that also creates a lot of fear around intimacy and closeness with others. And then as an adult, we see that as an individual who really values their independence, uh, doesn't, isn't really comfortable being close and vulnerable with others, um, and has kind of learned, you know what, I'm better off on my own. And then lastly is disorganized. So disorganized attachment is usually a result of growing up in a home where the person that is supposed to be the source of caregiving, right, and safety and stability is also a source of fear. So a lot of times with disorganized attachment, that child um, is subjected to some kind of abuse, or uh, we see... I've seen instances where maybe that caregiver isn't directly abusing the child, but the child is witnessing the caregiver abuse someone else, right? And that creates fear within the child. Or I've also seen, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like ACEs, like the idea of like adverse childhood experiences, right? So like severe poverty, having a parent who is struggling with addiction or um, their own mental health. Um, financial security in the home, like some of these can also create disorganized attachment if there's just a lot of that kind of trauma. So all of that to say from a childhood environment like that, this creates an adult who wants closeness, but also greatly fears it, right? So it kind of creates an adult who has a little bit of the avoidant attachment characteristics, a little bit of the anxious attachment, And as the name says, their attachment is disorganized because they kind of want both, 
right? And being with someone like that, it can feel really confusing. And a lot of times those people unconsciously sabotage their connections with others because they're kind of expecting and reinforcing that core belief they have that other people let me down and reject me and, you know, disappoint me and so on and so forth. So I'm done. <laughs> I felt like that was a long explanation, but important, important information. No, that was amazing. Thank you. I have a few follow-ups. So one, um, is this characterized typically by one caregiver or like multiple caregivers? If there's two caregivers, like typically in a family, is it if both are behaving in a certain way or is it like, if even if just one of them is behaving in one of the ways you described, you're going to see some of this play out? Well, my thought and opinion, and Dr. Betsy, please, you know, jump in with your your thoughts too, is I think what I see a lot of the lot of times, um, especially if we have a parent who is kind of getting into that territory of maybe they're struggling with their own mental health or personality disorder, or um, if they're abusive, right? And the example with the disorganized attachment I just said. A lot of times the other parent, maybe they are more supportive, but they're also very passive, right? Because I would like to, like if they were like this really active caregiver, and this of course comes from from a place of no judgment, right? Because I really like to believe that all parents are doing the best that they possibly can, all caregivers are doing the best they can, and people can only provide to others what they can provide to themselves, right? And what they've learned, but if the child continues to be in a home where these things are taking place, even if the other parent's kind of supportive or, you know, trying to be there for their, their child, that passivity of letting that behavior continue kind of is still creating this attachment, if that makes sense. Even if you have one parent who is kind of available, it's not really enough to negate the impact of the other things going on. Yeah, I agree. And thank you, Mia, for for bringing us together, because I, I got so excited right now just hearing Dr. Hearing Nicole say what she said, because yeah, I agree. I think that struggles from childhood, it's typically there's like a primary caregiver. And, you know, and, and, um, you know, there there is usually like one parent that is more impactful. And if the other parent doesn't do a good enough job, protecting this child um, or helping this child make sense of what's going on in the relationship, um, then that child is still going to be greatly impacted by, you know, that, that primary caregiver relationship. You know, something I see a lot, for example, is my clients will come in and they'll talk about, let's just say, a, a sibling that was always bullying them. And, you know, and so when we start talking about their caregiver relationships, it's like, oh, no, yeah, you know, I had a really good relationship with my parents. My mom was very loving and, you know, we didn't have conflict. But the problem, though, is like, OK, but you had a sibling that was always bullying you and your caregiver, unfortunately, failed to protect you from that. So, yeah, like even though I think that sometimes, um, you know, when it comes to working with clients and talking about their childhoods, that's like a very sensitive topic that I think as therapists, we have to learn to navigate sometimes. But yeah, I definitely agree with Nicole that we're impacted not just by what happens to us, but sometimes even what was what we were not protected from and what didn't happen to us, too. So for anyone who 
is listening or who is either becoming a parent or who is a parent, if they're in a dynamic that may be unhealthy for the child or they may be in a relationship that has some you know, aspects of what you've been describing or even with what you mentioned around like financial insecurity or maybe other factors that are somewhat out of their control, what is the best thing they can do to somewhat shield their children from what they're experiencing, this like passive trauma almost? I mean, I think that, uh, of course, is like any parents that I work with, I really encourage them to focus on what is in their control, right? Like, so you just mentioned financial insecurity. Sometimes, you know, that's out of our control, right? So um, I think that what is in every parent's control is creating that kind of like safe space for the child to share their emotional experience, right? And for that to be acknowledged and validated. And I think that, you know, for parents, there's so much fear, like, oh my God, I'm going to mess up. And, you know, I really believe just the simple acknowledgement of like, oh, that wasn't a great moment for mom, right? Like, you know, I yelled and that wasn't great for me. Like that's also teaching your child that humans are fallible. We make mistakes, right? But we acknowledge it and we're openly kind of talking about these things instead of sweeping it under the rug, right? Or, you know, if there is something that feels really hard, like, again, you know, going back to this example of financial insecurity, you know, talking about that, not pretending that it's not there or sweeping it under the rug. I think that that's really important. And I think that if you are in a relationship where it's just a really bad situation, for the child, or maybe there is some abuse going on or what have you, I think I would really encourage those individuals to reevaluate if this is a relationship that you want to stay in and an environment that you want your kids to be in. And of course, you know, it's much easier said than done for me to sit here and be like, oh, you know, maybe you should rethink this. I, I totally honor that. But, you know, research shows us that kids are actually much happier if the parent does leave, right? Versus kind of that old school model of like, oh, stay together for the kids. And when they go to college, we'll separate. Like research has shown that that's not really doing anything for the kids, right? So um, that would kind of be my thought too, is if you feel like you're stepping up in the best way you can, but like the other person or people, you know, in the home who are caregiving for the child, uh, you see that like, oh, wow, this is having a really negative impact on my kid, focusing on what is in your control. And if that's an environment that you can remove them from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I really love all the points that Nicole was making. I think um, even if we just kind of generally look at the the perspectives that our society has on parenting, um, you know, prior to more recent years and, you know, more education on parenting and attachment and things like that, I think that there was always this perspective that, you know, adults and parents are um, superior to children and that their needs are superior to children's. And so I think that when that happens, then parents will try to shield their children from from difficulties. And the problem is, is that when we continue to shield our children from difficulties, is that they become adults, and they're just like bamboozled by adult life. It's like, what is this? What are these problems? You know, how do, how do I deal with these problems that are in front of me? So I, I agree. I think that um, kind of 
you, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to like sit down with our children and tell them exactly all the details of what's going on, but they need to make sense of what's happening in front of them because they don't have the emotional intelligence and the perspectives to understand, oh, my dad or my mom or this person, you know, has their own struggles and those struggles are impacting me and how I'm viewing things. Being able to sometimes apologize to your children and say, hey, I'm so sorry that I overreacted today. Um, you know, I, I was really tired when I came home from work and you didn't do anything wrong. You know, something like just a simple message like that is going to allow children to understand that, yeah, like adults are not perfect and that not every single thing that they say is the truth. I, I do also want to recommend this wonderful, wonderful book. It's by Dr. Daniel Siegel um, called The Whole Brain Child. And I just feel like that's such a really, it's, it's such a great book for like an easy read also for parents to kind of understand how a child's brain works and how to help children make sense of bad things that happen to them. That's amazing. And thank you for that recommendation. So mm -hmm. I guess from whether it's research or your experiences working with clients, how early are we being impacted by what we're experiencing as children? Like, is this from when you're literally born or is it around like when you're a toddler? And then in addition to that, let's say you had a certain childhood or lifestyle or dynamic from ages zero through 10. And then at 10, maybe your parents get divorced or there's some type of, or maybe not divorce, but some other type of event that occurs that creates a change in what you're experiencing. Or maybe your parent gets a new partner and that creates a new dynamic. So would that, obviously that's going to have an impact on you, but is that going to shift whether it's like your attachment style or just how you're forming relationships as an adult, what's having the greater impact? Is it that early childhood or can it be any age before adulthood? When, when is that greatest impact happening? So my experience of this, it's funny because I feel like as I've grown as a therapist and as I've become, I guess, more experienced, more educated, that age keeps going back to a point where it's like for a while it was like oh it was happening even in the womb but now it's like no it was happening even before conception you know so that's what like generational trauma is all about is that you know we carry all of the traumas from past generations and how to look at situations how to deal with situations so an example even um i'm, I'm chinese and so one thing that I see happen a lot is I work with a lot of Asian clients and, you know, a, a common struggle for, let's say, females is their relationship with sexual intimacy. And, you know, one of the things that I, I realized based on my own observations of my experiences, as well as, you know, um, you know, just knowledge of, um, you know, Asian and, and Chinese um, culture and values is that, you know, if you go way back, you know, with arranged marriages and things like that, um, for a parent, their main purpose is to help their daughter find a good home to marry into. And so in order to do that, then they want to make sure that the ch children are very pure and, you know, that they're like, you know, that, that they're presentable to a good family. 
And so, um, you know, what I've noticed is that there's a lot of protectiveness around purity and, you know, and, and protectiveness around, um, you know, uh, around um, the, the, the daughters of families and like, don't go out. Don't, you know, don't, don't just engage with anybody. When you go out, you have to be really, really careful. So one of the things that I noticed is that, you know, that, that for me growing up, it was always like, be careful when you go out because you're going to get attacked, you know, and this is all men want. So you have to protect yourself. And so on the one hand, even though, you know, I learned how to protect myself, I learned, you know, how to be safe when I go out at the same time. I found myself really struggling with intimacy in relationships because of this protective feeling that I would have, um, you know, and having that difficulty, like, you know, like compartmentalizing, like this is my partner versus, you know, like some person, some arbitrary person that I was told to protect myself from when I was growing up. So I, I frequently find that happening. And so I, you know, what I've observed is that, yeah, there's just a lot of those kinds of messages. And that's an example of generational trauma that's kind of carried on that started generations back. And, you know, even though we've never met any of these ancestors, you know, we're still being affected by the messages. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because I was curious about how much our just societal conditioning, how much the messages we're receiving as a child, our interactions with our friends and where where we literally or physically live, um, so the context and our environment, how much that's contributing to, obviously that's all shaping us, but I guess when it comes to relationships and how we behave within relationships, how we seek out relationships, who we're looking for and who we're attracted to, is that typically shaped by the caregiver relationship or is it all of the messaging that you just mentioned and obviously it's all playing a role but what what has the um stronger role in terms of just relationships specifically i mean my opinion is that i think that if you have a really strong healthy caregiver relationship in the home growing up and healthy role modeling of love and self-regulation and communication and all of that the societal messaging isn't really going to have as much of an impact right i think that a lot of that impacts like like here's an example that i find like fascinating um you know, a lot of times in TV and movies, a lot of those relationships uh, show different examples of insecure attachment, right? And why that is, is because there's <laughs> highs and lows and there's the emotional roller coaster. And like if on TV and movies, we saw secure attachment, it would be a snooze fest, right? Because like there's communication, there's conflict resolution, no one's playing any games, right? Like everyone's being upfront, they're generally trustworthy. So I say all of that to say that like when I talk to people and they're like, oh, my God, you know, like these examples of like this anxious avoidant trap, right? And these different dynamics. And they're like, oh, my God, don't you love like that movie? And then I'll talk to like some of my friends who grew up with like these really healthy role models of love. And they're like, I have no idea why so and so stuck around for, you know, eight seasons. <laughs> da, da, da. 
So I say all that to say that I think that if you are, have already kind of been subjected to, you know, unhealthy modeling of love, right? Or if you've struggled with insecure attachment yourself, that's what you saw your parents model. All of that, you're going to be so much more susceptible to um, compared to if, yeah, you're pretty secure and you know what you want and you're out there and you're not playing games and all of that. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, you want to <laughs> add something? Yeah, I definitely do. It's, it's hilarious that she, she's saying that, that, you know what you just said, because, yeah, I think that when when we're children and, you know, we're not, uh, you know, first of all, like if, if we didn't have, I guess, like a, a secure attachment or we weren't taught how to, you know, have, I guess, healthy, peaceful relationships with people and develop, you know, healthy self-esteem and, and learn how to be attuned to our own feelings. What ends up happening is that we start looking elsewhere for models of, you know, oh, that's what love is supposed to look like. And so, yeah, it's it's funny because you just see it all over TV, just all of all of these examples of very, you know, um, conflicted and insecurely attached to relationships. And um, I remember it's, it's, it's funny, like I was watching this movie with my husband and the first scene of it, it was like Sandra Bullock. I don't remember what movie, but her husband had blindfolded her, took her to this house and he, un you know, took, took the blindfolds off and he surprised her with a house I turned to my husband I was like you better never not ever do that <laughs> like you are not ever to go buy a house without telling me so it's funny because like you watch these things and you're supposed to see that as like oh my god what a sweet husband you know but in reality it's like okay relationships are supposed to be equal you know like equal parts and I think that um it, you know when when we have a, I guess, like a, a secure enough upbringing, um, then a lot of those societal messages just ends up just simply being messages. Like we're able to kind of recognize um, the difference between like what our needs are and what other people's needs are. Um, I think that a lot of times when parents themselves aren't very emotionally intelligent or lack communication, one of the things I notice is that they don't know how to communicate to their children. This is what I expect. This is what I want from you. I love you, and you know, and and I want you to be able to succeed. And so, what they end up doing is like, you see your cousin, how well they're doing. You, you condition your child to start looking outside of themselves in order to grow and find like what success and you know what these like. I guess, like outcomes are supposed to look like. So yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, again, it all goes back down to like, what kind of support, you know, what kinds of, of parenting is going on to kind of shape, you know, what this child focuses on, and when it comes to growing and how to grow and, you know, what security is supposed to actually look like. Yeah, I'm just nodding along with everything you're both saying. I think that comparison <laughs> game like that you just alluded to is such a dangerous road to go down and I think it's far too common where yeah the easiest way to explain what you would want is to just kind of say that you see it in someone else and then that's definitely not a great um, dynamic to set up for your kid and then Nicole I love 
the posts that you do, the pop culture ones, it made me think of them when you both are talking about TVs and movies, because just like the ones where this morning I saw it was the Gossip Girl characters and like their different attachment styles. And I was obsessed with Gossip Girl in high school. And I think it's so interesting that some of the shows that I rewatch as an adult and and or the new shows that I watch with just like a different lens, it's so quickly like oh my gosh he's actually a stalker or like this is so unhealthy (laughs) like this is so wild and just wrong and just the chasing and the ups and the downs and the like love triangles which is every show I guess it's just for entertainment but it definitely is how a lot of people learn about relationships interrupting this episode to briefly and shamelessly plug my latest venture niche niche is a marketplace for mental health whether you're looking for a therapist, online course, or community. If you are a therapist or coach looking to expand your services beyond your one-to-one clientele, head to withniche.com and create your profile today. If you're seeking mental health support, stay tuned. We'll be opening up the marketplace soon. If you're absorbing messages from what you're seeing on TV and in movies because you don't have the modeling in your own home or in your own family somewhere or someone close to you do you find both of you like or maybe not or what are your thoughts around this that people who aren't used to being in a securely attached relationship that they find themselves getting bored with securely attached partners or like it's just unfamiliar to them because you know they're used to a more chaotic or just you know less stable and consistent and peaceful relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I guess I I can, you know, share my thoughts on that. The truth is, is that, you know, when we feel anxious about something and then we get relief, there's this really wonderful feeling that we feel that I think sometimes we confuse for love, especially the love that we see on TV Right. So you might see a romantic, you know, Prince Charming. What's that that movie? Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever, right? And and like all of those things that he's doing. And we might fantasize about how that must feel. And I think a lot of times we confuse those kinds of feelings of like anxious attachment and being able to finally like get that relief for like love. And then we confuse that preoccupation that we have, like, oh, I keep thinking about this person. And like, no matter what they do, I keep running back to them. It must be love, you know? So we start to tell ourselves all of these things about what love is supposed to feel like. But then the problem is, is that these are not, they're not safe relationships because there's always going to be some painful cycle that is repeated. I think that a lot of times when clients come in and, um, you know, and, and they present with, you know, these kind of like anxious avoidant dynamics, it does take some work to help them learn how to get in touch with what it, what, you know, it feels like to be at peace, to be able to feel taken care of and recognize that, okay, maybe it doesn't have to feel so intense and extreme, but that there's value in being able to just be yourself, you know, just be able to kind of like, you know, feel like, you know, I don't have to worry about anything um, too much because I, I trust that this person's going to be there for me. And that's what true security is supposed to feel like, you know, this person's got my back. I think that, yeah, initially it might 
feel like a little bit boring and it, and we might be disappointed because it's like, oh no, but I was so into that person and I felt so strongly about that person. But, you know, but we need to understand that that's, that's probably not love what you're experiencing, you know? And so sometimes it can be a little bit disappointing you know, for some of my clients. It's like, sorry, but, but you know, love doesn't always feel that way. But at the same time, when they're actually able to like, feel what secure love actually feels like it doesn't feel boring like it actually feels very comfortable yeah I'm about to like pop off on this one this is the one that I like work with on so many people um or with so many people so I love that you brought this up and I think you Dr. Betsy just brought up so many good points about the anxiety and the relief But I think that if we grow up in a home where we're used to being in a hypervigilant state, right, when that's kind of encompasses the three insecure attachment styles, we don't really know what we're going to get. And I know that given my description of the avoidant attachment, you may think like, oh, well, they've just shut down their systems. No, they're still feeling right. They may not be outwardly expressing it, but someone, a child with avoidant attachment is also experiencing a lot of anxiety right? They're just not externalizing it in the same way that someone with anxious attachment is, right? They're just internalizing all of that. So I say all of that to say that I think when we become adults, we repeat what we don't repair, right? And we recreate those dynamics that feel familiar to us, because the subconscious associates familiarity with safety. So it's an evolutionary, right, like type thing, like, where we got to recreate this. This is what I'm used to. And I think a lot of us make the mistake of associating that feeling of anxiety with chemistry. And it's not chemistry, it's anxiety, right? Um, you know, when I work with people and they go out on a first date with someone and they're like, oh, sparks were flying, we're soulmates. Like, <laughs> and I'm just like, red flag, T.O., like back it off, right? Because like that to me, that is you kind of seeing in this other person like, oh, yeah, we're going to be able to recreate all of this when you have that really kind of intense initial connection, because healthy love is nine times out of 10, a very slow burn, right? It's steady, it's secure, it's fulfilling, but it's not going to be this intense, like hot and cold, right? And it's going to slowly grow over time. So I think that that's really important to keep in mind. And if when you date these people, you feel, you know, quote unquote, bored, I think the work is really to identify like, okay, what have been my models of love, right? What were those examples that I witnessed growing up? What did love look like? What did it feel like, right? How did I witness my parents or caregivers showing love to one another? How did they show love to me? And is that what I want to recreate? Is that what I want for myself? And if it's not, then the beautiful and amazing thing is you get to pick out for yourself, like, okay, this is what I want. And this is what I want it to look like and feel like. So when you go out on dates, even if you do feel that really intense attraction to someone, you can kind of check yourself in a really compassionate way of like, okay, is this is this just my subconscious kind of being attracted to this other people because we get to validate each other's, you know, views and experiences from childhood? Is this what I want to recreate? Or do I want something different? And do I need to kind of hold steady, even if in the beginning, 
doesn't feel like this hot and heavy connection, but I'm going to let this kind of develop and see if it can be something more, which might take a little more time. Yeah. When you mentioned the slow burn, all I could think of was um, Married at First Sight, which I've been watching. I've watched that too. (laughs) It's the opposite, but then the experts really advocate for that slow burn and how you can build attraction over time and how all of these things can, I mean, sometimes I think that the matches they made are just, and obviously the concept is not advisable, but I do think it's interesting (laughs) how they talk about, you know, when there is that intense chemistry at first, that's not necessarily an indication of a strong match. It's more about the kind of match and partnership you can develop over time, you know, with this person who might be aligned on your values and things like that. But I was thinking of a few things. One around, well, I guess just a clarifying question, anxiety, like just generalized anxiety, how much does that have to do with anxious attachment? Because you mentioned that you can be anxious and like, is that totally a separate thing? Or are people who are anxious, do they tend to also have anxious attachment? Is that a connected phenomenon or experience? I don't, I don't necessarily like, I mean, when it comes to anxious attachment, it's more so related to like what happens to you whenever you have any kind of like, I guess, like relationship interactions. It doesn't necessarily always mean like a translation to generalized anxiety or anything like that. But um, I guess like my perspective and Nicole, I'd love for you to weigh in because you're a lot more knowledgeable on attachment theory than I am. But I guess like for me, with my perspective of like this anxiety, you know, when it comes to attachment theory is that as children, we we don't know anything about the world. We completely need to rely on our parents to take care of us and guide us. The sole goal of a child is to be safe. And so depending on how their parents respond to their needs, that will create certain anxieties, right? Because the anxiety is there to almost like, is to, to kind of warn them that like, hey, you know, death is impending. This is threatening to you. You know, like your parent is mad at you. So, you know, what are you, what are you going to do in order to get their attention again? Oh, your parent you know, sometimes comes to take care of you and sometimes doesn't. So what are you going to do the next time they come up is I'm going to hold on to them, you know, and, and, and fear that they're going to leave again. And so from that perspective, it's possible for a person to struggle with certain attachments without necessarily having generalized anxiety elsewhere. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I do not think that they are related. I mean, I think they can, you know, impact one another, but by no means, if someone has generalized anxiety, does that mean they have anxious attachment or vice versa? You know, very, very separate. And I think if I can share, because I just think this is like a quick kind of interesting factoid that drives this point home is, you know, Mary Ainsworth, who do, did these experiments in the 70s called the strange situation experiment, right? So what she would do is she would have kids in a room playing with toys. They would be with their mom and the mom would leave and then the mom would come back and you would see how the child would react to their mother returning. And children with secure attachment would be kind of bummed the mom left, right? But when the mom came back, they were quickly soothed. They would like give the mom a little hug, right? And they would go back to playing. And kids with anxious attachment, when the mom came back, were very difficult to soothe, right? They would keep crying, right? Like, 
you know, we would put that under the adult equivalent of protest behaviors, right? It was very hard for them to kind of soothe this anxiety, both when the mother left and when the mother returned. And with avoidant attachment, it was really interesting because what they found was when the parent left, the child was, you know, a little upset. But when the parent returned, the child didn't really, wasn't really upset. They kind of ignored the parent. They just played. And at first glance, the researchers thought, oh, wow, they've just kind of like shut down their emotional systems. They're just not feeling. They just, you know, it's just not bothering them. But what they found was those children were just as anxious and in some cases had even higher levels of anxiety than the children in the anxiously attached group. So the point I'm making is that when we look at this umbrella of insecure attachment with anxious, avoidant, and disorganized attachment, yes, those three attachment styles go in different ways of or go about it in different ways of trying to get their needs met. But at the core is that inconsistency, there's an unpredictability, and all of that creates anxiety in the child, even if it's expressed different ways. Got it. So if you have like, if you're noticing when you, for example, drop off your kids at daycare, and one is really because that's pretty common, right? That you take your kid to school and they're crying and they're really upset. Is that an indication that maybe something's going on where they're feeling like experiencing that anxious attachment? Or is or is that just a really common thing that happens when dropping kids off? I think that's just totally normal. Um, I think that kids have to eventually learn that my, my mom's going to come back to get me. You know, um, it is going to be really, really hard for them in the beginning to adjust. And I, I I say this just because I, I guess that I'm using my, my nieces as, as an example is that usually for the first week or so, they're going to cry every single day and they're going to have a really hard time. But then my sister would always come back at the end of the day to pick them up. And then when she drops them off, reassure them, mommy will be back to get you in a couple hours and then consistently come back. And so that kind of helps them develop, you know, those those emotional resources in order to kind of like trust that mom will be back, trust that, you know, they're safe, trust that mom is putting me in a place that is safe and nothing's going to happen to me. And so this allows children, uh, yeah, to like kind of trust relationships and even uh, develop their own abilities to cope with difficulties as well when, when mom might not be around. No, that's super helpful. Okay. Awesome. Um, Thank you for answering that. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I want to talk a little bit just about, I mean, obviously, we've been talking about it the entire time, but childhood experiences and just some relationship common threads that we see. So one being like in a heterosexual context, is there any truth to the theory that women are attracted to men like their fathers and men are attracted to women like their mothers? And if so, why is that? And does the same hold true in same-sex partnerships? Before we answer that juicy question, I want to talk to you about my favorite sexual wellness essential. You already know what it is, Uberlube. Uberlube is like the Ferrari or the Maserati of lubricants. Whatever car you find absolutely fabulous, that is the Uberlube equivalent. Uberlube is a high-performing, natural to the touch, 
silky smooth silicone-based lubricant with a weightless finish to elevate sensation and minimize friction. It's got a velvety feel that is just giving pure luxury. And of course, pleasure. I believe that pleasure is vital to our mental health and exploration of self. Uberlube is physician recommended by over 3,000 doctors. Need I really say more? If you haven't already, I think it's time to try it for yourself. Head to uberlube.com and use code TABU, that's T-A-B-U, for 10% off your order. Enjoy. My personal feeling is that I don't really agree with that. I think that we are more so, like I was talking about earlier, just repeating the dynamics that are familiar and that we're witnessing and that were modeled to us. So whether that's with two dads, two moms, non-binary folks, right? Whatever that modeling is, I think it matters so much less about it being like, I'm going to find someone that's like my dad. I think that we see that kind of both ways. So that's kind of my take on that is that you're more looking to replicate the dynamics that you saw between your caregivers. So I I guess like an example of this, like, okay, here we go. So my parents, right, obviously very different personalities. I'm so much more like my dad, like me and my dad, like, pretty, very, very similar personalities. So earlier when I first started dating, I actually was dating a lot of people like my mom, right? Because I'm recreating that dynamic. So I hope that kind of makes makes more sense. You're kind of finding that miss, missing puzzle piece. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's not a deliberate thing that we seek out relationships that are like our parents. I think that you know, it's, it's familiar to us. And so sometimes it's almost like we're desensitized to certain treatment and certain relationship dynamics. Sometimes it could also even be that we're perceiving the relationship to, you know, and, and looking for patterns too. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that we deliberately, you know, look for those kinds of relationships. So that people commonly say like, oh, I'm looking for somebody that's just like my parents. Not necessarily true. Even if I were to use my, my own personal example. So I would say that my husband shows a lot of traits that are similar to my dad, but it's not because I went out to look for that. It's because I'm used to being treated a certain way. And when there's certain red flags, so for instance, if I'm you know, if my dad was extremely respectful of me and care, you know, and, and protected me, and then all of a sudden I date somebody that is completely disrespectful of me and doesn't care about my needs, that's going to become a red flag because it's like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. However, it also happens the other way around. Like if I was raised by a, you know, caregiver that was extremely critical of me, or maybe even observed a lot of toxic kind of dynamics, that might not stand out as much as a red flag when I'm when I'm older, or I might not have the resources to know how to respond to those types of situations, because I wasn't raised with skills to, you know, so so yeah, like, again, I don't think that it's so much that we seek it. It's just that, you know, we're, we're familiar with certain dynamics. That makes sense. Do you find that siblings tend to then seek out partners that like that all the siblings kind of tend to have a similar partner or not? 
because they're all having, I mean, I would imagine that they're having relatively similar childhoods. Yeah, I find usually not for a couple of reasons is, you know, sometimes uh, individuals at a young age get in therapy, right? They work on themselves. We don't know kind of what the trajectory is of that child. I think another huge factor is there's a phenomenal book that I love called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents by Lindsay Gibson. And she talks about internalizers and externalizers. And I think that also impacts a lot of this. So an externalizer is a child who maybe, you know, stuff's going on in the home. And that's the kid that's like, screw everyone. Like, I'm gonna go like be wild and drink and party and like be, you know, like the scapegoat and like the bad kid and whatever. Versus the internalizer who's just internalizing everything and put so much pressure on themselves. And that's a lot of times we see the child who is engaging in, you know, self Uh, injury behaviors like an eating disorder or cutting or, you know, things that are kind of like going inward and attacking the self. So I think that those are some factors that kind of impact each child's trajectory. And I think another concept that I really, really love that I think just kind of like hits this point home that we're talking about is Lindsay Gibson talks about something called a healing fantasy. So when you're growing up in childhood, a lot of us have this hope that like, you know, one day dad will give me the attention that I want or, you know, mom will tell me she loves me or whatever. And a lot of times when we become adults, we transpose that healing fantasy onto our adult relationships, right? Because our subconscious kind of wants to tie it up in a nice fancy bow and be like, oh, we got we got our wish, right? Of course, we don't realize we're doing these things. But I think that she does a really good job of writing about and explaining how sometimes that's another driving factor is our subconscious is looking for people to give us the happy ending that we didn't get in childhood from our caregiver. One of my favorite books too. (laughs) Just a friend was saying to me the other day how some people will almost recreate those dynamics in adulthood in order to rewrite history, essentially, and repair it in that context. And I'm imagining that's not necessarily the best um, way to go about it. So (laughs) for a lot of the people that I've talked to, and we like pulled our Instagram audience on, you know, their attachment styles and how they show up in romantic relationships versus how they show up within their friendships. Why is it that that's often different? Or have you, would you say that that's also been what you've found? Like, why do we seek certain relationships in one way and then romantic partnerships in another way? My thoughts are, I I actually will disagree with that. I think that whatever our attachment style is, that is going to pretty much show up in all of the relationships that we have. I think to a different degree, I think that with a romantic partner, the stakes are so much higher. You're so much more vulnerable, right? So that anxious attachment is going to be 110%, right? Like you're going to be at the ready. A significant other can hurt you in a different way than a friend or a coworker can, right? So I think that across the board, that attachment style from what I've uh, found and, you know, my experience working with clients, that is going to be pretty steady. It's just going to be a on very different levels, right? Like, you know, people that I've worked with who have anxious attachment, that does come out with their friendships, you know, worrying, oh, is, oh my God, did I say the wrong thing? Are they mad at me? Do they not want to be friends anymore? You know, reaching out, are we okay? Are you upset with me? So that's really been my experience is those things are pretty steady across the board. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that I tend to agree with that as well. Um, this is, this is something that I've even kind of noticed in myself. I think that the, the, the thing that, that I guess is that people generally, and, and Nicole, you can chime in if, uh, you know, if, if you, um, if you disagree, but I think that people don't generally like perfectly fit into one particular attachment style. And so I think that oftentimes people are like looking for some way to explain like, okay, like I am completely avoidant or I am completely anxious. And I think that generally I do agree is that like what happens to us on the inside, um, you know, when we engage in relationships, especially like the more intimate the relationship, the, the you know, stronger our feelings are going to be. Um, but then, you know, we might, you know, have developed like various coping skills. So even though we might feel a certain way, we might deal with it in very different ways. So you could have two people with, you know, more, I guess, anxious styles of attachment, but it might look very, very different from either one relationship to another in the same person or two different people with, you know, the same style attachment that deal with whatever anxieties it is that they feel in very, very different ways. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Also, maybe that you're experiencing it, but because you're maybe seeking out a partner in a way that also because your caregivers, you're also witnessing their dynamic. So what you're mimicking in a relationship is also what you've experienced. So then you're kind of modeling that in that romantic relationship context, whereas maybe a friendship context is a little different, even if you're experiencing the same or those attachment wounds are coming up within a friendship. It may be that you maybe even seek out partners that are, I'm sorry, friends that can validate your feelings more or that like don't have those same dynamics. So if that makes sense, like you would still have the same things come up that would make you feel anxious or would make you like maybe a friend doesn't respond. So then you're like, well, fine, I'm not texting you for three days. You know, like there may be the different ways that you're reacting, but you're also maybe having friendships that don't necessarily have as extreme problems as it can be if you're, if you're seeking out unhealthy romantic relationships. Yeah. I think um, kind of what Nicole was saying earlier is that in certain relationships, when the stakes are higher, what that means is that stress response, uh, you know, kind of takes over and, you know, the more stressed out we are, the more rigid we become in how we deal with certain situations. So when we're in, let's just say, a very, you know, safe and I'll use the word secure friendship, let's say that, you know, there's a there's a, a, a friend of yours that you guys are very good at communicating your needs, you guys are good at setting boundaries. Like, let's say that I made an appointment with that friend, and I couldn't make it. And I was able to say like, Hey, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm just so tired today. I can't make it. And that friend was like, you know what, that's totally cool then what that does is that that creates a very safe situation between you and that friend. And so whenever there's any kinds of conflict, you might be able to feel safe to be able to, you know, to, to talk to this friend and overcome, you know, this conflict without this fear that this person's going to abandon me. So, you know, under a safe context, we're able to be a lot more flexible in relationships and we're able to kind of use that part of our brain that is able to process and, and, you know, kind of like evaluate situations versus when you're in, you know, a, a um, relationship, again, when the stakes are higher and you don't necessarily know how to resolve these certain conflicts, you might be a little bit more rigid because, you know, that because of that stress response that that occurs. It's like, 
you know, there's just two parts of our brains that don't work together, you know, and it's almost like the switch, right? So it's like under stress, it's like, this is how you behave. This is how you view things. This is how you respond to things. So I think that that's just usually what happens to us in relationships and why we might show up differently sometimes in different relationships. I think that answers the question that I had about can your attachment style change with different partners? Yes. Um, And then kind of maybe why that's happening. But does the same hold true for people who tend to be more securely attached? Could they enter a relationship dynamic that then causes them to swing a different way? Or if you're securely attached, you're securely attached. But what then, I guess? Like once you're securely attached, and I know that obviously they're not like, it's not a hard and fast thing that every time it's this exact thing. But I guess with secure, if that's based on your upbringing, then how can that or is it possible that that would change in your adulthood? Yeah, I mean, I I like to believe that everyone does have like the core attachment style, right? That is a product of your upbringing, but definitely 100% things can impact that right? I think that attachment styles are plastic, right? So I mean, if you are sitting here listening to this, and oh, I have an avoidant attachment or anxious attachment, you can change your attachment style, right? Like we can definitely move to a more secure place, therapy and working on ourselves and education and all of that. So with that being said, someone who's securely attached, if they enter partnership with someone who's very avoidantly attached, that's going to bring out some anxious traits in them naturally, right? Because someone who's anxious in relationship, that person's going to be very withholding, right? They're going to be more distant. So naturally, that's going to cause you to like, like, hey, what's going on here, right? Like draw you in a little bit more. And the same can be said if you have a partner who's really anxious, that can cause you to retreat a little bit because it can feel really overwhelming with that person's, you know, need for reassurance and all of that. So I think that it can definitely bring out traits of the other attachment styles. But what I found is that when that relationship ends, a person who's secure with a little bit of time and work on themselves can, you know, totally return to that secure place. But, you know, depending on who we're in partnership with, it can kind of bring out different sides of us. So we actually had a question that kind of, I think, goes along with that, which is how to accept other attachment styles without taking it personally. So someone asked, how do I understand someone who has an avoidant attachment style if I have an anxious one? And also, I guess, along with that piggybacking on it, do you find that certain styles tend to seek out one another or that certain styles tend to avoid one another like they're automatically not attracted to I guess Dr. Betsy like you said on a date if you were experiencing a dynamic with someone who totally is different than how you experience like you know your caregiver maybe you would be turned off by it because it isn't familiar to you so I guess yeah is that do you find that certain people attract each other and what does that look like? Well, I guess that, you know, if if I were to refer more to research, you know, and and I guess based on observations, you know, that anxious avoidant trap is, it is very common. So, you know, if we were to say, like, are there certain styles that we sometimes might be attracted to? Again, I think that it's not necessarily like an attraction kind of thing, but more so like, oh, this is, this is familiar you know, and that's what love is supposed to feel like. And so it doesn't, I guess, become so much of a like, hey, there's there's something wrong here. Generally, though, I don't know, I I guess that 
I don't, I, I guess I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't like to like, I guess, make those kinds of like generalized like statements because we're just always like meeting different people and there's like things are just always happening to us on a daily basis. We learn different things about relationships. And so, yeah, I guess that um, my answer is I don't really have an answer to that um, besides, you know, what research says about anxious, you know, avoidant trap and, you know, and that my observations um, have have validated that. Yeah, I mean, like uh, Dr. Betsy said, the anxiously attached and avoidantly attached, those two are like moths to a flame. And the reason why is because they validate each other's unconscious views of the world, right? The idea that when I get close to people, they run. And when people get close to me, they need too much and I don't know how to handle it, right? So those two really, we find those as a couple a lot. And there are a gazillion examples in TV and media of you know, the anxious avoidant dynamics, Carrie and Big is a great one from Sex and the City, Claire, or Claire, Blair, Blair and Chuck from Gossip Girl. So I think that's one. I think that secure pairing with any of the attachment styles, that can totally work. And it can actually be a huge blessing because they can serve as a secure base for the insecurely attached person. And also, if the insecurely attached person is actively working on themselves, right, they're aware of maybe some of these behaviors or things that they do of getting in their own way or sabotaging connections, the secure person can really help them, you know, work through that, you know, if you're anxiously attached and pairing with someone avoidant, that is going to be just not fun for you, right? Because they are going to exacerbate all of your anxieties, where someone who's securely attached, they're probably going to be much more willing to offer you that reassurance and be a better communicator and stable and trustworthy. And that's really going to lower all of your anxiety and help you move to a more secure place. And I think lastly, what I find is that avoidance rarely date each other. And the reason why is because they never really get anywhere, right? (laughs) Like if you have two people that, you know, yes, maybe underneath it all, they want to be close, but their behaviors are not conducive to closeness and building a partnership. It's really hard for two avoidance to get their relationship off the ground right? Or to really get anywhere because neither one of them wants to like be vulnerable and lean in, right? And all of that. And I think the other reason is because someone who's avoidantly attached, their feeling of independence and mainly independence is so important to them of being strong and all of those things. And it's really hard to feel that way if you're with someone else who has that exact same goal, right? And and people don't realize that they're doing this, but it's someone who's avoidantly attached, it's easier for them to feel fiercely independent and strong and powerful and all those things if they're paired with someone who's anxiously attached, who maybe they view as more needy and, you know, dependent on them, if that makes sense. So that's kind of another reason why it's hard for two avoidance to make it work, because they both have that same goal. And they both don't really want to do the work to get close and get the relationship moving. Yeah, that's that that roommate situation, right? It's like, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm married to a roommate. As I was listening to Nicole talk, um, something kind of came up. I think that, you know, when it comes to that anxious avoided trap, something that I also see happening is that in the very beginning of the relationship, 
it's very exciting. The person who is more anxiously attached, they come off very perfect. And, you know, and, and, and the other person feels really good because like, oh, this person really, really likes me and this person's really taking care of me. And so in the beginning, the relationships feel very, very good. But then, you know, when, when there starts to be conflict and, you know, and, and friction, that's where the problems start to emerge. And of course, in every single relationship that happens, you know, and so, yeah, I think that something I've commonly seen is that um, the person with a more anxious attachment is going to come off extremely perfect in the very beginning. It's almost like this, like, you know, fish line hook kind of thing for the partner that they're with. I mean, I definitely can say that I've witnessed and experienced that. So I, it's, I'm just like, yes, this all is very much sounding true. Um, so I want to just kind of squeeze in two last questions. I'm going to see if I can combine them and get your thoughts. One being how much weight do we give to someone's attachment style? And is it in some ways self-fulfilling? Like, you know, I'm anxiously attached and that's why I attract these partners or this is why I'm doing this or this is why this is happening. And maybe it's a great foundation for having conversations and exploring like, oh, well, this is where this is coming from. But yeah, have you seen it in maybe some cases where people are just using it as or, or just validating every experience they have with that? And then secondary to that, how do we trust ourselves and our natural instincts while also creating room for like pushing against our natural instincts when it isn't serving us? To kind of answer your first question, I'm going to go backwards here. But I think that it's so important to know ourselves well and kind of what I was talking about earlier with patterning, because I think that that is something that I think so many people struggle with, right? Like, is this a good instinct? Like, should I listen to my intuition? Or is this like me repeating old patterns, right? So I think that having that knowledge around, okay, this is what I'm used to, right? Like, this is what I want to avoid, can really help us identify if this is helpful and moving me towards my goals of having that healthy, happy relationship that I want. Or if I follow this, you know, gut instinct or intuition, is it not helping me? And, you know, sometimes we make mistakes, right? Like sometimes we try it out and see how it goes. And then we reassess like, ooh, okay, I was a little off on that one, right? I thought that this guy was or girl was a great match for me. And now I'm realizing that, you know, I'm noticing some red flags. So I think it's, you know, a constant kind of reassessing. And I personally feel attachment theory is so helpful, because I think that it's such a great foundation of how we attach to other people. Right. So I think that we should put a lot of weight into it because I think it can be really helpful and a great framework to work from. But with that being said, I see so many people misdiagnose their attachment style. So I do think that this is something that's really helpful to work with a coach or a therapist with because I've worked with many people in my own practice who are like, I'm avoidantly attached. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You know what I mean? Like, so I would just kind of be mindful of that. And I will say it doesn't have to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think knowledge is power. And I think like for me personally, I struggled with avoidant attachment for a long time. So that's really helped me because now I can identify like, oh, Nicole, what are you doing? Right? Like you're doing this because you're trying to create distance in your relationship. So that helps me kind of put a framework to my behaviors and kind of label them as either helpful or hurtful 
towards the self-identified goals that I've made for my life and my relationships. Yeah. So my perspective on it is kind of like what Nicole was saying is that there's just so much mental health information out there nowadays about relationships. And these things are very interesting. I mean, it's why I got into mental health in the first place. You know, it's just that psychology is fascinating because it's us. And so I think now that mental health and all of these, uh, you know, I guess like psychology things are becoming more and more mainstream. One thing that I've sometimes gotten frustrated at is when people self-diagnose and they insist that like, oh, like that's what's happening to me. And then they start using like terminology and phrasing and, and they're, they're really insistent. And I think that how that sometimes impacts like my work with them is that it, it's, it's so specific that it's like, it's really hard to kind of, to, to kind of get out of that framework and to be able to kind of look at things in certain ways, because they're so insistent that like, no, I self-diagnosed myself. Right. So if I were even to use like WebMD as an example, like, you know, it's like, oh no, I, I know for a fact that I have that diagnosis. What that's going to do is prevent you from looking at other things and, you know, things from different perspectives. And so I think that in terms of the self-fulfilling prophecy, I can definitely see how that can sometimes be an issue. And yes, you do want to work with a um, professional that is going to be specialized in, you know, so for instance, if attachment theory is something you really connect with, find a therapist that does actually specialize in attachment theory, just because, you know, these are all different frameworks right? Like, it, you know, there, there are different ways of looking at pretty much the same kind of patterns. And then in terms of like gut instinct, yeah, that's one of those things that people always say, trust your gut, trust your, no, don't trust your gut, just don't blindly trust your gut. Be curious about what your gut is trying to tell you, because sometimes your gut is right. But sometimes your gut could just be an, you know, a, a natural protective instinct, you know, from from some sort of a trauma. So I would say that whenever you feel anything and your gut is trying to tell you something, those are moments where it's like, slow down, you know, like relax, like what is, what, what's going on right now? What is your gut trying to tell you? And if anything, that's actually where change occurs is that when you catch your gut trying to tell you something and then you actually slow down and then you get to decide in that moment, what do I want to do about this situation? What do I normally do about this situation, even though it feels like the right thing, but where is that going to end up leading me? How is it going to be reinforcing whatever cycle that, that I've been repeating? Yeah, no, I think that's a hundred percent just like amazing advice because I do think it's really easy to want, obviously to want to trust your gut. And in many cases it is definitely guiding you somewhere, but taking that pulse check to say, okay, let me take a second to actually figure out what's going on and like, not just like validating myself in my unhealthy instincts, but actually listening to, okay, why am I feeling this way? And then where do you go from there? So, okay. Well, thank you both so much. This was a really eye-opening conversation and I'm sure people are going to love listening to it. Where can people find you and are there ways to work with you? Where do you want people to go? 
Yeah. So you can find me. Uh, my website is thepracticeofpeace.com and I'm on Instagram at thepracticeofpeace. I am also going to be coming out with a course in January 2023 on attachment theory. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, that's how you can find me. So you can shoot me a message, send me an email, but I love to connect and, you know, help people with these kind of things and relationships and attachment styles and all that good stuff. And you can find me if you're on Instagram at love always Dr. Betsy. And if you're interested in working with me, you can visit my website at www.drbetsychung.com. Amazing. Thank you both so much. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I know everyone says that, but I would genuinely really appreciate it. Or send it to a friend. Any way that we can get more people listening to and having these conversations is a win in my book. Now, I would love to know, do you know your attachment style? Like actually know it? And how has it impacted your relationships? Hop on over to our Instagram at askingformyself and shoot me a DM. I wanna know who you are and what questions you want me to ask. Until next time. Thank you.